Thank you, worship team, for helping us. Thank you, Mike, for inviting me to open the Word, and Kelly for uh, abdicating your privilege this morning so that I could be here and do this. As uh, Drew faithfully recounted uh, at the beginning of the service, that I spent uh, 25 years in pastoral ministry, and it was as much a learning experience for me as the people to whom I ministered. And then I was invited to help uh, a number of people uh, learn to become shepherds in the church. And so I was able to teach in seminary for a further 19 years. And we moved here a few years ago to uh, continue walking with the Lord. Will you pray with me as we begin? Father, I thank you for the clarity of your word and its power by your Holy Spirit. I pray you'll help me to stay out of the way and let you say what you want to say and help all of us receive what you have for us here this morning. I ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. As you're turning uh, in your paper Bible or device or in the bulletin to the text this morning, I think I owe it to you to explain why I have included 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15, as well as the preaching portion, which is uh, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 15 reads like this. I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things so that if I delay, you may know how one, anyone, ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and buttress of truth. So here the Apostle Paul is giving the purpose statement of this whole letter written to Timothy, his pastoral delegate in the church in Ephesus, he would like to say these things to them face to face, but he might not get there in time. So he wants them to know how to use this word, and it is how to conduct life in the church. And that is the responsibility of everyone. I wanted this to be included because I'm going to be speaking about the qualification of elders, and some of you might be tempted to say, I'll never be an elder for various reasons, so I'm not going to listen. This text is for you, according to Scripture itself. And it is key that the Apostle Paul tells Timothy how he is thinking about the church, namely, as the household of God. And he further defines it as a church of the living God, which is both a pillar of the truth, that which holds up the truth and makes it visible, and as a buttress of the truth, that which defends the truth and makes it solid. So because the, the, the church is a truth organization, what we're going to read about and try to bring out from this text about the qualifications of elders makes sense. So 1 Timothy 3, verses 1 to 7. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, 
self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, but uh, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive, for if someone doesn't know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the same condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into the snare of the devil. Does anyone here believe in fitness? Fitness? You're in good company. So does the living God. This passage is about selecting overseers, also called pastors, also called elders, who are fit for the task of serving in that role. He believes in fitness, and so he wants us to know what the qualifications are. And fortunately for you and for me, this is really quite a simple passage. The first verse speaks of what the ESV translates a noble task at the end of verse 1. Do you see it there? It's more literally a good work. The work of being an overseer, an elder, a pastor is a good work. It's a work. I thought I'd get an amen on, from some of the elders on that. It's hard work. And we should, as we already have in this service, be grateful to them for taking it up. But it's a good work. And very simply, a good work calls for good men to do it. The work of shepherding is a good work, and it calls for good men to be willing to take it up. But that doesn't mean that the rest of us don't have any responsibility. What is our responsibility? How are we to supply to our congregation the good workers that this good work calls for? Well, by heeding the qualifications in this text. Not just hearing them, but heeding them. Paying attention to them and putting them into practice. And I see three qualifications here, note takers. Three qualifications. And I want all of us to know that these are not optional extras. They are non-negotiables. If you look at the text itself, you'll notice in verse 2, therefore an overseer must be above reproach. And down in verse 7, moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders. So bracketing this preaching portion is the word must in the ESV, which faithfully renders a little three-letter word that Drew and others would know, day. It's necessary, not optional, has to be there, non-negotiable. So what are those three qualifications? Here's one. A qualified elder must have a track record. Qualified elder must have a track record. You say, you ask, as you should, where's that in this text? It's implied in the whole text. The logic of what Paul is saying to Timothy here requires that those possible candidates have a track record that is, in fact, observable. 
Let me illustrate why I think that's the case. Suppose I were to send you to Wegmans, our local grocery store, and say, would you buy for me a hand of bananas? A hand, by the way, is British English for a bunch of bananas. Would you buy for me a bunch of bananas? That assumes that you have a way to get from here to Wegmans, that you have some money, that you know what a banana looks like, that you can enter the code 4011. I'm not paying extra for organic. <laughs> that you've got the money to pay for these and that you can get them back safely to me without eating one of them. All of that is implied in a directive. This is a directive to the church saying, here are the qualifications of elders. And it implies that there's something we can see if we look for it. Potential elders, we need to observe their relationships, their demeanor, their family life, their reputation with outsiders. And these have implications for all of us. Thank you. We are coming to that time when we're going to be called upon to nominate elders. So we must not nominate anyone we do not know well enough to know whether or not they fulfill these requirements. You know, sometimes on the television news, you'll hear of someone who has perpetrated a, a horrible crime. And often the local TV station will take someone out with a microphone and go to the neighbors around where that person lived and say, what do you think of this person? Well, pretty nice guy. I talked with him in the street, etc., etc. They had a knowledge of this person. They knew who he was, usually as a he, but they didn't really know him. Don't nominate anybody you don't really know. Don't nominate anyone that you don't know well enough to know whether he fulfills these qualifications. And, and I hope some of you do, if you aspire to eldership, be realistic about your own track record. If you don't have a track record, you're not ready. And if you don't have a track record, and if you meet the other qualifications, there's something you can do about that. Or get involved in ministry. Do the little things as well as bigger things if they are offered to you. Picking up litter on the on the parking lot as you come in, serving perhaps in the nursery or making coffee or getting the communion elements ready. If you have the privilege of being in the fellows program, take full advantage of that spectacular opportunity for being discipled and learning where your gifts might be. And it says to all of us that we need to be creating opportunities to serve where we can observe those who are serving. There are lots of those opportunities in our church, and we just need to take advantage of observing them. I've been blessed to be helped by a number of organizations, including the Navigators. And the Navigators used to say of people that they led to the Lord, who they were in the process of discipling, he's been around for a while. You ever hear that from the Navigators? He's been around. What does that mean? That means in the process of being shaped into the, into the image of Christ, that disciplee is watching other more mature people, but they are watching him. Is he ready for a little more responsibility? They've been around. 
Another organization said, we're looking for fat people. Not meaning people who are carrying a few more pounds than they should be, but faithful, available, teachable people, an acronym. That kind of people is what we should be looking for. Now, we're not disqualifying people who are carrying too much weight, but that's not what they were talking about there. And we need to make use of the structures that facilitate knowing others in our congregation. Everybody needs to be involved in these structures. Community groups. We'll all be in community groups. If you're not in a community group, join a community group. That's where we observe what people are like in order to make informed decisions about who should lead us. It may be a community group or a ministry group or a study group or hub. The most basic group, of course, is the household. That's where we observe people when they're out of the spotlight, and we should. Now, here's an implication of this first qualification that may sting a little bit. Suppose uh, a wife of a prospective elder uh, knows that her husband is being considered, maybe going to be nominated, and she is asked to testify. What do you think? Is he ready? Tell the truth. We are an organization of truth-tellers, and it does your husband no good to paint the picture of him that does not correspond with reality. It's better to tell him first than to tell the person who asked you, but tell the truth. The body deserves no less than that. Why is this important? Because elders model the truth of the gospel. They display it and they speak it. And if the track record says those manifestations of the grace of God are not there and are not visible, they're not ready. That's qualification one, an observable track record. Qualification two, qualified elders must have an aptitude to teach. Do you see that at the end of verse two? Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-control, respectable, able to teach, as the ESV renders it, but it's really just one word. The elder must be a, a didacticon. He must be someone who is a, a teacher intrinsically. And I note that that is in this list, but not in the qualifications of deacons, which follows. And in this list of qualifications for elders, it is the sole skill qualification that is listed. It's the only one that's a skill. The others are about character and reputation and track record. So that when the Apostle Paul wrote the book of Ephesians, he listed those gifts God has given the church. And the fourth one of those is this hyphenated gift, pastor-teacher. It goes with the territory of overseeing. So what does this mean? Well, it does not mean that every elder needs to be a skilled public speaker. Uh, Carlton Dixon said that a few weeks ago when he shared his testimony as one of our serving elders. Don't have to be a skilled public speaker. It doesn't mean that. Nor does it mean that he has to have formal theological education of course, we require that of teaching elders, and it doesn't hurt for other elders to have that as well, at least if they went to the right school. It doesn't hurt. <laughs> what does it mean? That's why I asked that Titus 1.9 be, 
be put into your bulletin. Look at that again. This is crucial because it explains what Paul meant when he said, apt to teach, able to teach. Titus 1, verse 9, the parallel passage listing other qualifications and reinforcing some that he's already listed. Verse 9, chapter 1, Titus, he must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. That is, he must know how to put together biblical truths. And not just any biblical truths, but the truths that have stood the test of time. Anything novel in Christian theology is heresy. It goes back to the scriptures and what has always been affirmed by the church and endures is what we're talking about. He must hold firmly, not flakily, not doubtfully, not with mental reservation, but firmly to the trustworthy word as taught. Why? So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine positively, and also rebuke those who contradict it. The reason this is so important is that the church is always besieged by faulty ideas. It's the pillar, and the church is the pillar, and the bulwark of the truth. So those who are charged with overseeing it need to know the truth. They need to be able to encourage people with the truth, and they need to, to rebuke those who contradict it. In other words, shepherds feed, they feed the sheep, and they protect the sheep. I'm going to say that I think this is the primary qualification of overseers. And it's to be true of all elders. 1 Timothy 3.2 is in the general list. Titus 1.9 is in the general list. But somebody may say, yeah, but what about 1 Timothy 5.17? I hope you've got a paper Bible so you can look up across the page to that. 1 Timothy 5.17 says, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of a double honor, especially those who labor in, in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle the ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Drew and others who are following along in the Greek know that the word for lead there, or the word that's translated rule in the ESV, is the same word used back in 1 Timothy 3 of leading the family. And that's true of all elders who are to be uh, managing, ruling, leading in that way. And the word for well in verse 17 is the same word in a different form as of the word for good, a good work, noble task in verse 1. And what this is, is, is saying is that all elders need to handle the word well. And some elders, and it was my privilege to be one of these my whole working life, labor in the word and in teaching, and they are given a stipend double honor, honorarium, so that they had the time and energy to do that. I think that's what this is saying. You say, why all? Any of you who have lived and worked in, in a corporate setting, I hope you haven't, but you may have had this experience. There's a buyout or something else, and a corporate head parachutes in a supervisor who really doesn't understand the culture, doesn't know you, doesn't know your job, and he begins to tell you, here's how you are to do your job. 
What did you feel when that happened? My guess is you resented that because we don't want people supervising us who don't know what we are supposed to do. That is why every elder needs to have a firm grasp of the truth, know how to encourage people with it, and refute those who contradict it, because the church is what? The pillar and bulwark of the truth. It's basic. It's that basic. Shepherds feed the flock and protect the flock of the flock. I like the way David Mathis in his fine book, Workers for Your Joy. I think it's the best summary of the qualification of elders out there. He asks the question rhetorically, and I'm going to paraphrase it, and the way he asks it tells you what his answer is. Is the elder the kind of man who can teach if he has a gun to his head? Or is he the kind of man who won't stop teaching at gunpoint? You see, we need elders who are teachers at heart because they understand the nature of the church and because they understand the way the living God oversees the entire body of Christ. So they reflect that in the way they lead the church. So qualification one, an observable track record. Qualification two, aptitude to teach. Qualification three, a qualified elder must have good character. I mean, that's the major point of this whole section, good work, calls for good men to do it. And in our text, 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7, the bulk of the space is given to character. Because the way we oversee the flock is show and tell. It is audio, but also visual. We teach sound doctrine, but we display it. So we're told, all of us, to adorn the gospel So later on in chapter 4, verse 16, when Paul is exhorting Timothy, he says, watch your life and your doctrine, and so you will save yourself and others. Faulty character always undermines even true doctrine. It's absolutely essential, and sadly, there are way too many instances in our our own day where faulty character has done just that. So how are we going to tackle this long list of traits. Briefly, you'll be glad to know. And we're going to do it the way an HR person would do it in a corporation. You know, HR stands for human resources, the people who hire and fire. And when they get a stack of resumes in the old days or a feed from Indeed or one of the other sources, what do they do? There are some that are knockout traits. There are some resumes that they don't even look at. I was once on a search committee for a youth pastor and one of the resumes was submitted from prison. That was a knockout trait. Now, I'm grateful for what the living God can do with prisoners and redeem every kind of person. After all, he redeemed me. But that was a knockout trait for that position. Listen to these knockout traits. He's not a drunk. He's not violent. This is verse 3. He's not quarrelsome. In other words, not an angry person. He is not a lover of money, to paraphrase Os Guinness. If someone loves booze, we kick him out. If he loves money, we make him an elder. (laughs) No. Love of money is not a good thing. It's okay to have some. Abraham was rich. Others were. But we mustn't love it. 
Not someone whose dependent children are wild and unsubmissive. In one of the churches I served, we had a lovely guy who was a real good Bible teacher, very affable, but he, would never, he could never serve as an elder because the, the police knew his address by heart because of his kids. Not someone who has a bad reputation with the community. I knew a person in another church who was well-liked there, but he served as a guardian ad litem, that is someone who looked after the affairs of someone or several people who were not able to look after their own financial affairs. And the word on the street was he was skimming. He was taking advantage of these people. I didn't try to confirm or um, have someone provide evidence that that wasn't true, but it was enough. It was a bad reputation, whether it was strictly accurate or not. You see, having someone with any of these knockout traits is like having an illiterate editor of a newspaper, a music critic who's deaf, a colorblind painter. Although I've seen some art that may have actually had a colorblind painter. No, it's like inviting someone to be an example when we know they are a bad example. So what about the positive qualities? Well, in verse 2, it says an overseer must be above reproach. And that's the, one, the only one you really have to remember here, above reproach. It's the umbrella description that's here in, uh, in 1 Timothy 1, but it's also twice in Titus 1. It's the main thing he wants them to get. This does not mean an elder is going to be perfect. I wouldn't be one in the churches I've served if that were required. It doesn't even mean that he will be above criticism. That goes with the territory, unfortunately. It does mean he will be above valid criticism. In other words, nobody can say anything negative about a serving elder that sticks because we are all, as Paul Tripp says, in the midst of our sanctification. Just understand the logic of this. Look across the page again at 1 Peter 5, 19. Do not charge, do not admit a charge against an elder except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. So don't nominate anyone that you could already charge with something because the presumption of that verse is there wasn't anything when they were elected to the position. If it comes up later, then be careful about how you discipline that person. Husband of one, wife, verse 2, a single-minded, loyal, one-woman kind of man. Sober-minded, verse 2. Why? So you can pray, as Peter says. Self-controlled, especially with the tongue. We had a saying when I was teaching pastoral theology, if you lose your temper in a session meeting, just go home and pack. Because you've lost credibility. It's an overstatement, but it's there for a purpose. Respectable. Already mentioned in this service. We respect the office, so those who are in the office should be respectable. Hospitable. Share what you have. As the book title has it, the gospel comes with a house key. Share what you've got, whatever it is. Gentle, the fruit of the Spirit, which is the way we are to 
draw people to the gospel and restore those who strayed. And then able to lead his own household well. Verses 4 and 5. Consistent, proactive, loving, wise, sacrificial, gracious, unselfish. The way God himself leads his household. So if you aspire to this good work, let yourself be stretched by this text. But aspiration is not enough. It needs to be matched with character. So what are we supposed to do now, all of us? What's the application of this for everyone? Well, obviously it is to pray. Because unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. We need to be people who are praying for who we should nominate and who we should elect. And then be involved in equipping, discipling people. If you're discipling someone, some of the people you disciple may rise to the surface and be elders. Serve the church and observe those who are serving. Encourage those who are aspiring to this. Just a quick word to women and girls. You may have been not listening because you're not male, and in our polity, elders will be male. How do you think Timothy became the elder before others were appointed of the church in Ephesus? Ephesus. Scripture tells us very clearly in 2 Timothy, it was because his grandmother and his mother fed the word of God to him and exemplified it. You know those from whom you learned it. I am not saying, do not hear me to say, women, that this is the only thing you can do. I'm not saying that. In fact, I think the lead, lead pastor elder role is the only thing proscribed in Scripture. Take me aside if you think I'm wrong about that. No, but this is a tremendous privilege and opportunity, which I would commend to you. I was so encouraged a couple of weeks ago when Jackie Kalmus said, as uh, she and John, her husband, elder, gave us their testimony, she challenged John early on to become elder material. We need a lot of families, households, who are challenging potential elders to become elder material. Why is this selection of qualified elders so important? Let me ask you a question. What is the most valuable thing in your life? I may have biased your mental answer to that question by using the word thing. You might have thought of your your house, your car, your portfolio, I thought of my books. No, the real answer to that question is, of course, your family, your household. I like the sign at the Brooks Family YMCA, bring your family, leave your other valuables at home. It's because our families are genuinely valuable to us. So here's the question, would you entrust your family to just anyone? babysitter who didn't know how to hold a baby, a youth worker couldn't keep his hands to himself, a hospice nurse who was clearly in it only for the paycheck, a teacher who'd gone rogue. No, you wouldn't. So put yourself in God's position. He tells us in his word he values above all things his name and his word, but right up there with them 
is his household, his church. And we know that because he allowed his only begotten son to die for us. God is not about to entrust his household to someone who is not fit to oversee it. And neither should we. Father, help us to be the kind of church you want us to be, a pillar and bulwark of the truth. And give us additional overseers in addition to those who currently serve us, who meet your qualifications for the glory of your name.